Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, who uh, died on the cross for our sins and Thank you, Father, that you resurrected him. Uh, We also thank you for your Holy Spirit who who indwells each and every believer and who also overflows from us to help us uh, to be effective witnesses for you. Um, I pray once again over this gathering, Father. We pray that you will be glorified. I pray for the gift of teaching and a fresh filling of your spirit. And I pray that I would decrease and you increase. And, Father, that you would be glorified through it all. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 18 as we're going through the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. And on Sunday mornings, Pastor Jim is going uh, through the book of Revelation. And so we are in Genesis 18. And the title of the study is The Righteous God. The righteous God. So in Genesis chapter 17, just by way of refresher, uh, the Lord appeared to Abram and the Lord reminded him of the covenant that he made with him. And also in that chapter, chapter 17, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he changed his wife's name from Sarai to Sarah. And Sarah means princess. But God also made it clear that it would be his wife, Sarah, who would give birth um, to their son, Isaac, in their old age. So Isaac is the son of promise. And at this point in the study, of course, he hasn't been born yet. So Sarah and, and Abraham, they're still waiting. But during that time, Um, As we look in chapter 17, as God is having this conversation with Abraham, he instructed him about circumcision because circumcision um, was to be a sign of the covenant that Abraham and his descendants have with God. It showed that they were in a covenant relationship with God. And so at 99 years of age, it tells us in the scriptures, Abraham was circumcised. But then he also made sure that his 13-year-old son, Ishmael, was, was circumcised. Now, Ishmael, if you're just coming into the study, he is a son that Abraham had with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. So they did something in their flesh. They tried to help God out, and they made a mess, to make a long story short. And so at 13 years of age, Ishmael was also circumcised, as well as all of the males in Abraham's household. And so that's pretty much where uh, chapter 17 leaves off. And one thing I want to share with you is that throughout the Bible, uh, we learn about God's character and we also learn about his attributes. His attributes are those things that are true about God. And in this case, the attribute we're learning about or we're going to see is the righteousness of God. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I know it's a long chapter, but I'm excited to get into it to learn more about the God we serve, our Heavenly Father. And so we look at verses 1 through 5, 
So we'll start there and then we'll talk about it. So in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, it says, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees, or, or these great trees, these, this oak grove of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he was sitting there during the hottest part of the day. And so Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And it says, behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself to the ground. So it was a way of of showing respect. And he said, my Lord, or it could be translated as sir, Uh, If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts or regain your strength. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, these three men said, do as you have said. And so this takes place, what we're seeing in Genesis 18, not too long after chapter 17. So there is not this huge gap of time here. Abraham is still 99 years old. And so we see here that Abraham, he's, he's hanging out and, and just relaxing in the heat of the day. He looks up and he sees these three men. And verse 13 in Genesis chapter 18 actually confirms that one of the three men was the Lord who spoke to him. And the other two were angels. And you see that being confirmed in Genesis chapter 19 verse 1. And, and so the Lord appeared to Abraham by this oak grove or this, the terebinth trees of Mamre, which is an area near Hebron. And so what we see here as the Lord is appearing as a man is what we call another Christophany. We talked about that earlier. So this is a Christophany. In other words, this is Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. So once again, before he became the babe uh, born um, in in Bethlehem, lying in the manger, uh, this is an appearance that he made to Abraham as a man. It was a temporary appearance. And so during this time, we see that hospitality was very important. And so Abraham, he got up, he, he rushed to them and, and he said, please let a little water be brought, wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. And also he, he desired to feed them that they may be refreshed, that they may regain their strength. And so this hospitality in that culture at that time was, was very important. And according to one source, it says that in those ancient times, shoes such as ours were not in use. And the foot was protected only with sandals or soles, fastened round the foot with straps. It was therefore not only necessary from motives of cleanliness, but also a very great refreshment. So that would be good hospitality at that time to, to wash your visitors' feet. But notice also that they rested under the trees. So they were just hanging out. And so this rest in the shade, 
It was the second requisite or requirement for the refreshment of a weary traveler. And so he is being very hospitable. And hospitality, by the way, is still important for believers. It's even talked about in the New Testament. For example, in Hebrews 13, verse 2, it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly or unknowingly entertained angels. And it's this example here that we can see this verse being applied where Abraham is not only entertaining angels, but the Lord himself in the form of a Christophany or an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And he passed the test. He was very hospitable. But, but what about us in our homes when people come to visit? Are we hospitable or are we rude? And, or when people stop by here at this local fellowship, how are we treating the visitors? Are we rude or are they talking about or remembering how loving we are? And most of the time, almost all the time, I'm hearing how loving the congregation is. And that's something that Pastor Jim has shared over and over again. So we hear that a lot. And we're so blessed by that, that people can come here and they can sense the love of Jesus through the way that you greet the visitors. And so do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unknowingly entertained angels. In verses 6 through 15, back in Genesis 18, it says, So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures, which is about 21 quarts, of fine meal or best flour. Knead it and make cakes. Now, the cakes at that time were round, they were thin, and, and they were unleavened bread. And, and Abraham, it says in verse 7, he ran to the herd. He took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he didn't delay in his hospitality. And so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And it says in parentheses that Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So Sarah was back there being nosy as this conversation is going on. And in verse 11, it says, now Abraham and Sarah were old. They were well advanced in age and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? Shall I have sex, uh, sexual relations with, with my husband, my Lord, being old also? And so my Lord being a reference to Abraham, of course. And so in verse 13, it says, and the Lord, now this is talking about God here, said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard or impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. Or, uh, uh, so in other words, when the season for her delivery is here, 
I'm going to return, he says, and Sarah shall have a son. And we know this son to be Isaac based on our review earlier. And in verse 15, it says, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And so I'm sure that the Lord knew that Sarah was listening to the conversation the whole time. He didn't have to ask you know, where's your wife? He already knew that. Of course, he's the Lord. And so after Sarah heard that she would uh, get pregnant and give birth in her old age. And so at this point, she's 89. So when she heard that, the scriptures tell us that she laughed. She laughed. It was something incredible to her, something that she doubted. You know, here's a woman, 89 years old, and she stopped menstruating and she's gone through menopause at this time. And so what she had here was a laugh of doubt. And the Lord called her out for it. And we see here in the scriptures in verse 15, she lied about it. But but one thing um, I don't want you to skip over here when she laughed is that the scriptures tell us that she laughed within herself. You see that in verse, in, in, in verse 12, it tells us that she laughed within herself. So she, she didn't even laugh out loud. And so this goes to show you that, that this one of the men that were there, it's not just an ordinary man, was, wasn't just an angel or a messenger, but no, this was indeed the Lord because he knew her thoughts. He knew what happened within her, that she laughed within herself. And that's one thing that, of course, we, we know and sometimes we need to be reminded of when we talk about the Lord and what he's able to do is the fact that he knows our innermost thoughts. He knows our motives or the reasons why we do something, whether those motives are good or godly or, or if those motives are bad. If those motives are attention-seeking for men, God knows that. He, he even knows our feelings, whether they be positive or negative types of feelings. And we know, of course, because Jesus is God, that, that yes, he can do that. We see it here in this instance, but we also see this ability in the New Testament. Even though he took upon a human nature, just because he took upon a human nature doesn't mean he laid aside the fact that he's God. But what it means is that when he took upon that human flesh, so what he's referring to in Philippians chapter 2, it means that he temporarily set aside the independent use of his God privileges. But he was still God. He never stopped being God. But now he's not only truly God, but he's truly man. And of course, God had to take upon a body in order to die on the cross. Why? Because a perfect sacrifice was needed. And he had to come as a human because humans lost their spot in the garden. And so there needed to be a kinsman redeemer, somebody related to humans to fix the mess that Adam made. But in order, once again, for this sacrifice this human to be a perfect sacrifice and to make the payment for what man messed up 
than God himself had to do. And this is what's happening with Jesus. And, and I just want to show you John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, just to show you that Jesus never lost that ability to know what was in man. Because it says, now, when he was in, was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew that that belief was only surface level. See, Jesus knows false converts. That's not anything new. He knew all men. And he says, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man. Why? Because he knew what, we, what was in man. Just like he knew what Sarah did within her heart as she laughed within her heart. And so once again, this is more proof that, yes, Jesus is God. And just like it says here that he knew what was in man and he knew what was in Sarah's heart, God knows the turmoil that is inside of you when there's turmoil did. If there's not any turmoil, any, anything going on with, within you emotionally, praise God. Mentally, if nothing's there, praise God. He knows when there's fear in our hearts. He, he knows when there are doubts in our hearts. He knows when we're sincere, when we're not sincere. And as I mentioned earlier, he knows our true motives because he knows what is in man. And because of that, we can't lie to God. And so it's a humbling experience when we confess to the Lord. And that word confess, when we confess our sins to him, when we confess what's really going on within us to the Lord, what confess means is to say the same thing. So in other words, we're saying the same thing as God. We are agreeing with God that, yes, this is sin. That shows humility. God is on board with that. And so, no, we can't lie to God. Well, you can try, but he really knows the truth. In other words, what I'm saying is we can't deceive God. He knows what's in our hearts. But on the positive side, the flip side of that is the fact that because he knows what's inside of us, he he knows when we're having these struggles or whatever it may be. He knows when you're having those days where maybe mentally you're a little off. Or even those times when something's bothering you and you can't even pinpoint it yourself to be able to explain it to someone else. But, but he knows that on the positive side and he understands it and he's able to help you to overcome. And so, yes, that's a good thing that he knows what's going on within those of us who are made in his image. But here's the thing. This is. What's taking place here is 24 years after Abraham was told to leave Haran. Because remember, he was 75 years old, according to Genesis chapter 12, when he left that place. 24 years later. And so we see how God purposely waited for, for Abraham and Sarah to get to an age to where, according to human standard, it would be a long shot for them to have a child. He waited until they got to that point to where Abraham's and Sarah's bodies were, quote unquote, uh, dead in regard to being able to function to the point of having a child together. See, once again, he's 99 and she's 89. So God waited that long. Why? Because when when the promise came true, when it when Isaac would be born, when she would become pregnant in her um, elderly years. 
then nobody else would get the glory but God. And it's the same thing with us because sometimes God allows us or our situations to get to a point where there's nothing we can do about it. There's, there's nothing our family can do about it. There's nothing our best friend can do about it. There's nothing that the government can do about it. The things that we used to use as a crutch. There's nothing those things can do about our situation. And so it's like sometimes God removes the crutch, the, the people we normally rely on. Because sometimes he, he wants us to get to the point where there's just nothing humanly possible that could be done that way. That way in your life, it would just be so undeniable that it is God who worked it out for you. That way he gets the glory and that way you get to experience more of him. Because we read certain things in the scriptures about God being a provider We know that to be true. It's in the word of God. This is what God revealed about himself. But but for some people, it doesn't become real until you put in that situation where it seems like everything else is stripped away. And then all of a sudden, God comes through as a provider. Oh, yes, you may know that he is Yahweh or some would say Jehovah Rapha or healer. But you may not know him by experience in that way until you are in a situation where it's not humanly possible for you to be healed. But all of a sudden, God pours out a miracle in your life and you get healed. And so, yes, sometimes he allows us to to get to these situations where there's just nothing and no one to hold on to because God wants to show you more of himself. That way he gets the glory. He gets the credit. And he is well deserving of that. And so I wonder tonight, have you been in a situation in which there's nothing working or or there's nothing as far as uh, processes or no person who's in place and, and they're coming to your rescue? Have you been in that place? Could it be, as we've been discussing, could it be that God has you right where he wants you? But another thing that this shows in making this promise to this couple here is that there's nothing that is impossible for God. And of course, the Lord pointed it out to Abraham in a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question, of course, needs no answer. The answer is obvious. And this, by the way, that there's nothing impossible for God is something that Moses will come to understand in the wilderness While he was with the children of Israel. The fact that nothing is impossible with God is also something that the prophet Jeremiah will come to understand. Because in Jeremiah 32, 17, it says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. This is also something that Jesus had to remind his disciples of after Jesus had that conversation with the rich young ruler and and the rich young ruler. He didn't want to give up his riches. And so Jesus told his disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. 
And so the disciples were like, well, then who can enter into heaven? Well, well, Jesus had to remind them of this fact. In Matthew 19, verse 26, he says, but it says, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So even the salvation of people who you would think is hard for them to enter into heaven, God can work it out. God can do that. But this is also a lesson that a young virgin woman, Mary, of course, is something that she will be reminded of by the angel Gabriel in regard to her miraculous conception of Jesus. Because this is something that the angel Gabriel will say to her. Luke 137, for with God, nothing will be impossible. So there's nothing impossible for God in the Old Testament. And it's the same way in the New Testament. It's an unchanging God. And it's the same way today. You see, when we're in a difficult situation, as some of us may be in right now, we need to ask this same rhetorical question that the Lord asked Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? When the enemy shoots those fiery darts at you, take up that shield of faith. Ask that question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. When unbelievers in your life, people you've known for years and they just refuse to come to the Lord and they try to cast doubts in your mind, they, they try to uh, bring up things about the Bible and they say, oh, the Bible was just written by man and so forth. They bring all these things to you. Remind them, remind yourself, is there anything too hard for God? So this, this is the same God we need to remember. When we get in those difficult situations, this is the same God who spoke the universe into existence from nothing. There's nothing too hard for our God. And I have to say that because sometimes we, we do panic when, you know, we're, we're seeing something that, you know, that happens, you know, more often. Like maybe somebody, you know, stubbing a toe or something, they need prayer over their toe, or we're quick to jump into that prayer. We praying with the prayer of faith all day. But then when there's something huge or huge to us comes along, where it seems like there's a death sentence involved, then we don't pray with that same fervor. Not understanding that this is the same God who spoke the universe into existence. Is there anything too hard for God? That's the rhetorical question of the night. But in verses 16 through 18, back in Genesis uh, chapter 18, it says, And then the men rose from there, and they looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See, Abraham was considered, we talked about this before, but he was considered a friend of God. There's scriptures that actually say that. But the God of the universe, his God, our God, we see here he was going to make his plan known to his friend in regard to Sodom. 
And God still does that. For example, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He revealed to them what the father wanted him to share with them. For example, when in John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, he says, you are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so we see here that Abraham's friend, the God of the Bible, he's not going to withhold this information about Sodom from Abraham. And Jesus didn't withhold the information that the father gave to him from his friends, the disciples. But, but guess what? As believers, we also have the privilege of hearing and reading what the father shared with Jesus. And so if you place your trust in Jesus for salvation, if that's really true, then yes, of course, you're going to do whatever the Lord commands you. As Jesus says here in John 15, 14, that shows that you have truth faith. When there's obedience, that shows your love for him. When there's true obedience, that shows you are a friend of God. And as friends of God, true believers, we have the privilege, like I said, of reading and hearing what the Father have shared with Jesus to pass along to us. We are blessed to have these things revealed to us. And guess what? Yes, anybody can open up the Bible and they can read the words. And there have been stories of unbelievers doing that because they want to show how untrue the Bible is, how silly the Bible is. So, so yes, even unbelievers, they, they, they open up the Bible and they read it, but not for the right reasons. We even know that Satan knows the word and he'll twist it. However, the things, the things that we see in the scriptures and are able to understand as believers, the Bible says that they are spiritually discerned. For example, 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, but the natural man. Now, this is the person who does not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit within them. And so they don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They don't understand it. They don't accept it. Why? Because there's foolishness to him. Because they don't have the spirit of God. There's just a natural man. And it says, nor can that natural man understand those spiritual things or the things of the spirit of God. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually evaluated or examined. And so sometimes, yes, we're trying to explain this to somebody who, who's spiritually blind and, and they want to stay in that blindness. People whose hearts are hardened to the Lord, we try to explain these things and they just can't receive it. They're, they're the natural man. And so we need to understand that that first people need to repent and receive Jesus. And that's when the Holy Spirit will begin to indwell them. And that's when the Holy Spirit will get to mold them and shape them into the image of Christ. And that's when they'll open up the scriptures and, and they'll be able to understand 
those spiritual things. That's when they'll be able to come to a service and hear the truth and be able to say amen because they know what's in the word of God. They're spiritually discerned. You see, the Holy Spirit who searches the deep things of God, it says that he reveals spiritual truths to us. And so we are able to understand, guess what? What God has freely given to us. Verse 19, it says, for I have known him. And this is the Lord speaking. I've, I've known him. I've known Abraham. So he's, he's talking about why he should share this information about what's going to happen with Sodom to, with him. I've known him. In other words, I've chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him or what he has promised. And so the Lord was not going to hide what he was going to do from Abraham because it says here that he promised that Abraham will become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And of course, that's because the Messiah would come from his bloodline. But also God chose him, we see here in verse 19, because he wanted him to teach his family the truth, to teach his children the truth, to teach them the way of the Lord, to do what is right, to do what is just, what is fair. And God wants us as well to raise our family in the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, it says, and this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. It says, in these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. In other words, you shall impress. One, One Bible version says you shall impress God's precepts on their minds and penetrate their hearts with his truths. That's from the word of God. And, and talk about the word of God. When you sit in your house. When you walk by the way. or That is along the road. When you lie down. And when you rise up. And, and I'm not saying I was a perfect parent or anything. But I'm just saying one thing I used to do. When we used to go for rides as a family. I would just throw out difficult questions to my children when they were young. That they would hear from the word. I mean, from the world. Now, I would throw out questions like, how, how do you believe? I mean, how do you know there's a God? I'll just throw it out to them and see how they answer. How do you know that's the right God? How do you, how do you know Jesus really lived? How do you know that the Bible's the word of God? There's other books. How, how do you know that? I would throw that out to my children to see what they would say. And they learn and they, and they know how to answer those questions. And so as parents, we need to talk about the the word of God when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, New Testament. And you fathers, and it could be applied to parents in general, by the way, but it says you fathers uh, do not provoke your children to wrath. In other words, don't, don't make your children angry in the sense of frustrating them. To the point because you have unrealistic demands, you're, you're picking on them, abusing them or whatever. Maybe it could be verbal abuse or maybe you're showing favoritism. So, so don't provoke your children to wrath, fathers, parents, but bring them up in the training or in other words, discipline and admonition or the instruction of the Lord. And so this is a great privilege that we have today. But, but get this, notice how 
It says that God wanted Abraham to do this for his household, for his family, to teach them the, the word of God so that they can keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice. Notice how the Lord still wants us to do that even now. It wasn't just for Abraham. It wasn't just for the Israelites. It's for us too. And guess who else knows that? Satan knows that. That's why he's trying to get to the children first. We need to beat them to the punch. Oh, this is, the, this is what the world is teaching about sexuality. Let, let me, come over here, children. Let me show you what the Bible says about it. Oh, this is what the world is teaching about marriage. This is how the enemy's trying to get to them. Let's get to, to the word of God and let's see what God says about that topic. Do not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. Verses 20 and 21, it says, and the Lord said, because the outcry, the disapproval against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And because their sin is very grave or extremely serious, he says, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that it has come to me. I'm going to see if it's really as bad as I'm hearing, as he already knows, really. And he says, and if not, I will know. So, so get this, God already knew everything that was going on in Sodom. He already knew that it was a wicked city. He knew the sin that was going on there already. He's omniscient. However, he chose to take upon this body and, you know, temporarily here in this Christophany, he chose to step into time and to check things out. See, Here's what's going on. God knew of their sins intellectually because God, he knows everything. He cannot unknow anything. He just knows. It's like a big now to him. He doesn't see things as past, present, future. He sees everything as if it's completed already, beginning to the end. And so he knew of their sins intellectually, but now he is going to know of their sins by direct experience. And so, in other words, no one will be able to say that God did not know all the facts before a judgment because he knew it intellectually because he's God, he's omniscient, but now also he's going to know it by experience. He's come down here. But also in this situation, in this Christophany, it's also going to give Abraham an opportunity to interact with the Lord and to intercede on behalf of the righteous in Sodom. In Genesis 18:22 it says then the men turned away from there. They went towards Sodom. So two angels, the two angels they went ahead towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Still stood before the Lord and, and that is a great honor. For him to just him and the Lord just spending time together. And I will say this to to you, take advantage of those times when it's just you and the Lord, when the, when the company leaves the house, when the company, the the people who are visiting, when they leave the office, when you're in the car by yourself, when the family leaves, they go to the store, they go to the park for the day and it's just you in the house. I know a lot of us, we see, oh, I get a break now. I can Go and turn on TV. I could turn the station to what I wanted on. But I, but I would say this. Use that time to, to spend with the Lord. Just, just you and the Lord. Pray out loud. 
And, and that's one thing that I'm not saying be a, you know, copy me like I'm some super saint or anything, but I'm just giving some examples. So sometimes when, when it's just me, I, I walk through my house and I just pray out loud. Just, just walk through the house and, and the time goes by so quickly. And I, and I do not regret that time. And Abraham gets to enjoy that. He gets to enjoy this time in which he'll get to speak to the Lord, just, just he and the Lord. And intercede. And so that, that, that turns us to verse 23. And I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter from here. It says, and Abraham came near and he said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place, speaking of Sodom and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. I won't destroy it. In other words, in verse 27, then Abraham answered and said, indeed, now I am I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself. I venture to speak to the Lord. So you see Abraham's humility here. I'm, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm, but, you know, I have, I'm, Lord, I have a question if that's okay with you. Verse 28, he says, suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I've taken it upon myself. I've ventured to speak to the Lord. You know, once again, suppose 20 righteous people shall be found there in Sodom. So he said, the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more, just one more time, Lord. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his home. And so we see here that Abraham interceded on behalf of the righteous in the city of Sodom. And so intercede, by the way, means to intervene on behalf of another. And speaking of the righteous, by the way, they're not righteous because they do a bunch of good things. They're righteous because they trust in the Lord. For example, Genesis 15, 6, it says, and he, speaking of Abraham, believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God put righteousness into Abraham's account, spiritual account. He put righteousness there because he trusted in the Lord. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so the righteous that he's speaking of here that could possibly be in these cities are those who trust in the Lord and they've been declared righteous by the Lord. And so once again, he's interceding. He's intervening on behalf of these people here. And in Abraham's intercession, he, he asked God questions to see how many would need to be righteous in the city in order for the Lord to spare the city. Because remember, 
Abraham had family in the city. He had his nephew Lot there, Lot and his family. Lot had a wife. He had two unmarried daughters. He had sons-in-laws, which means he had married daughters as well. And he possibly had sons, according to Genesis 19.12. And so he asked for that last number 10. And of course, God eventually acknowledged that he would spare the city if, if there could be 10 righteous people found there. And what we see here is not Abraham changing God's mind. God's mind is already made up. But God is just answering. The Lord is just answering his questions. And at the same time, he's revealing his character to him. And and we should take a page from Abraham's book as far as interceding for people. Because as believers, we're to pray for everyone. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, all people, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're to be praying for everyone. And so as intercessors who should be praying for people, standing in the gap for people, praying for them. Notice that the intercessor here, Abraham, is praying even though he has his own issues. And it's the same thing for us as as people who intercede and, and we pray for other people, even unbelievers. Because God loves them too. He wants them to be saved. Yes, we may have our own issues that we need prayer for, but we're still praying for other people. Now, during this time of intercession or interceding here, Abraham asked God a question that that serves as a springboard for the study. He says in, in verse 25, or he asked a question in verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so the assumption here behind this question is that God is righteous. That's the assumption. And yes, it is true that righteousness is an attribute of God. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice or fair, a God of truth and without injustice or bias. Righteous and upright is he. But what is righteousness? See, as an attribute of God, it is God's uprightness, him being morally right. He's morally right in who he is. He's morally right in his ways and his standards, his judgments, his decisions. In fact, righteousness is an aspect of his holiness. And holiness is, is, means that God is separated from all moral evil and sin. It speaks of his perfection and purity. So when God is acting in righteousness, it's an aspect of holiness. And he's acting in righteousness because that's who he, he, who he is. That's his character. That's his attribute. And so however God is, that is the way he's going to interact. He's going to always do the right thing. He is righteous. 
You see, we see God's righteousness when these nations in the Bible were judged in the Old Testament. We also see God's righteousness on the cross. Psalm 8510 says that mercy and truth have met together, that righteousness and peace have kissed. As humans, we're in a fallen state without the Lord in our lives and are deserving of hell or eternal separation from God. But the scriptures tell us that God loves mankind and that God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to repent. His perfect will is for everyone to be saved. But of course, not everybody will receive him. But as the righteous God, even though that's his perfect will, he still had to deal with sin. And this, of course, is where Jesus, the son of God, steps into the picture. Because on the cross, what we see is that God's righteous judgment was poured out on Jesus, the one who took the penalty for our sins. And because God's righteous judgment was satisfied in Christ on that cross, then forgiveness of sins and peace was extended to all. And then therefore righteousness and peace have kissed in the person of Jesus and and what he did on that cross. But God's righteousness is also one of the reasons why we personally believe the rapture, for example, will take place before the tribulation period. Because the scripture said, and even Abraham knew it, that God will not slay the righteous with the wicked. And the tribulation period is a time where God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth. So he won't slay the righteous with the wicked. So, so yes, based on that characteristic of God and scriptures, we do believe that the rapture takes place before the seven-year tribulation period. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him. Now, interestingly enough, this chapter here comes after the rapture chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4. He did not appoint us to wrath. And so the same way he was in the Old Testament and not slaying the righteous with the wicked, God still has that characteristic. And so we also will see God's righteousness in judgment because when he comes back after the tribulation period, the second coming, he's going to come back with the saints, with the holy angels, and he's going to bring all the nations before him, Matthew chapter 25, and there's going to be a judgment of nations, the sheep on the right hand, the the goats on the left, so to speak, goats are the unbelievers, the the sheep will be the believers, so so there's going to be the judgment of nations, and then at, at the end of the Um, 1,000 year reign of Christ, we see the great white throne judgment, but the standard is the same. He's going to judge in righteousness because he is a righteous God. Psalm 98.9 says, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity or fairness. If you don't remember anything else, as the worship team takes the stage, remember that when we don't know the reason why something is taking place in our lives, maybe there's some struggle, something bad has come into your life. When you don't know that, you always fall back on what you do know about God. You may not have the exact why, but you do know his character. 
you do know that he is righteous. For example, when we see how it seems, and, and even one of the psalmists saw this, he saw that it seems that the wicked, they're prospering. Everything is going so well for the wicked. They, they, they got all this money. They don't seem to have any trouble. Nothing is happening to them. They seem to be so happy. Psalm 73, the psalmist saw that. But then after the psalmist was envying the boastful, the wicked, he came to the realization when he went to the sanctuary, he said, then I understood their end. You see, the righteous God is going to judge righteously. You always fall back on the righteousness of God when, when bad things happen to you. When there's a health situation, a, a health scare. When somebody mistreats you, you get fired from your job. When you start having marital issues or, or maybe you now have bad relationships with family members or children. Or maybe you've been to that point where you felt abandoned or were really abandoned, literally abandoned. When you've gotten to that place or, or, or maybe there's some type of injustice that have been done to you. Maybe somebody have bad mouthed you and they're gossiping about you and, and none of it is true. And, and you are in that place and you're wondering, God, I've been obeying you. I've been in your word. I've been spending time with you in prayer. I go to church on Wednesdays. I go to uh, church on Saturdays, uh, the evening services. And then on Sunday mornings, I, I go to the church and I serve there in the children's ministry. Lord, why is all of this taking place in my life? And I even go out and witness and, and and share the gospel with people. And so when these bad things happen to you, you tend to think that God has left you, but you need to remember that God is righteous. So I don't know what the enemy has been putting into your minds or, or trying to lie to you, or maybe a friend has been trying to lie to you about something about God because you're going through a tough time. I don't know what that is, but you need to fall back on the word of God and remember that, that God is righteous. So in other words, use the truth. Use the truth to fight those feelings and to fight the deceit from the enemy. Go back to the word of God. Amen? Amen. So we have communion here, front and back, two cups. So as you feel led, grab it, go back to your seats, pray over it. Remember, um, you want to glorify the Lord. If there's any sin, ask the Lord to reveal it to you. Confess it. And he'll forgive you. He's a faithful God. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We, we pray over the elements for the communion. We pray that you'll be glorified. And, Lord Jesus, we do want to thank you for sacrificing your life for us. And, Lord, after communion and as we leave this place, I pray for safety on the way home. I pray for you to equip us and use us this week, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming out. May God bless you. May God keep you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.